The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes, you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of May 17th, 2021, as the Chicago White Sox wrapped up a four-game series against the Kansas City Royals this weekend. It was a tense affair and a dramatic ending as hashtag walk-off wild pitch offense came into play as Jose Abreu scored the winning run with a bold dash to home plate and making a terrific slide to avoid the tag. Thanks to that slide, the White Sox are 24-15 and and have a two and a half game lead in the American League Central. They hop on their charter flight and head to Minneapolis to face the Twins for three games and then they have an off day and then they're on their way to the Bronx, which will be a marquee matchup in Major League Baseball with the Yankees and White Sox squaring off. Can the White Sox continue their winning ways this upcoming week? We'll preview the Twin Series, recap the action down in the minor leagues, and answer your questions in P.O. Sox at the end of the show. Let's get started first by talking about Jose Abreu. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, 
It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. What a bold move by Jose Abreu to make that mad dash 90 feet away, a terrific slide to avoid the tag and score the winning run in Sunday's game. That whole inning was about calculated risks. Uh, one on behalf of Yuan Mankata, who tried, who blew through a, a Joe McEwing stop sign to try to score in Whit Merrifield, and Merrifield hit him out by 15 feet. Kind of made sense a little bit, but you know, with one out, it didn't. You know, they still had an uh, out to play with the score. Um, you know, score Mankata with a productive fly ball, but with a Brayu two outs on third, Grandal to play Grandal hitting relatively poorly, even though he's shown some signs as of late. You know, basically his, I guess, you know, the way he had to look at it was that if he had a 30% chance of scoring, it was good enough. And uh, he converted. It was it was amazing. It was incredible. It was a lot of fun. And uh, it did make me a little bit mad. I wrote about this at the top of the recap uh, that it made me a little bit mad that, uh, you know, and again at Tony La Russa for not knowing the extra inning rules and having Liam Hendricks run for himself versus having Jose Abreu do it because Abreu can occasionally do something cool like this. He's he's uh, not a great base runner in terms of speed, but he knows what he's doing mm-hmm. and uh, occasionally can see openings where guys his shape, size, and speed normally wouldn't fit. Right. That's a good point. And yeah, that was a very exciting play at the plate. Royals manager Mike Matheny Kind of trashed Major League Baseball's replay system. He was very not happy with the call uh, in his postgame presser. Looking at all the replays, and there were multiple angles at this play at the plate. Did Cam Gallagher ever tag Jose Abreu, in your opinion, before Abreu touched home? It kind of looked like it. I mean, I also mentioned this in the recap, saying that if they were wearing their customary Sunday winning ugly uniforms with the white uniforms... It would have been a lot easier to tell uh, because he had a uh, Gallagher's black mitt uh, blending right into Abreu's black jersey, so it was hard to tell if there was any uniform ripple, if there was any glove flex whatsoever, uh, until Abreu's hand touched the plate. Then he saw a clearer contact after that. But it was the kind of play where the call, whatever call happened, would have deserved to stand. I, I think if Abreu were called out and Larusa challenged it. I don't think there would have been enough to overturn that. I think that's just how the play broke down and how the visuals were. I don't think he, I don't think he tags him. Like there's multiple angles and maybe you are right. If the white Sox are wearing the 1983 uniforms uh, and they didn't because it was armed services weekend. So the white Sox had the camo hats and they got to wear their regular uniforms when they're wearing uh, different types of caps. Uh, Maybe, maybe you do see that, but I don't know, Jim, like I, I have watched that replay a number of times and it was a terrific swim move by Jose Abreu to have that type of awareness when you are sliding it to home plate as the winning run and being able to swim over the glove with your left hand and, and tag as far as home plate and to avoid the tag. It's just a absolutely terrific slide by Jose Abreu and it was quite the weekend for Jose Abreu because on Friday in the first game of this series, I was wondering, Jim, oh great, Jose Abreu is in a collision with Hunter Dozier and now he's going to be out for many weeks because that's the White Sox luck this year. And uh, very, uh, I don't know, maybe it's not the best comp, but very Paul Canerco-esque when he got hit in the face 
and refused mm-hmm. to be taken out of the game. Jose Abreu wanted to play the nightcap, and uh, he convinced Tony La Russa that he was fine enough to get back in the lineup on Saturday. Uh, so despite that terrible collision, I mean, Dozier is on the seven-day injured list uh, for the concussion protocol. So Dozier got the worst of it. But it was a very eventful weekend for Jose Abreu to have that type of collision, shake that off, being able to hit a home run on Saturday, and then score the game-winning run on Sunday. That, that That's a pretty busy weekend. Yeah, Paul Canerco, I think, is a, a fair comp just in terms of toughness. Uh, the ability to bounce back, the ability to play through stuff. Um, you know, Brayu had the uh, bandage on his left cheek to to show it, but otherwise, you know, he was um, you know driving the ball. He looked fine in the field. Um, you know, and then he had the legs to make the play at the plate. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess you know sometimes you you wonder when players try to get back in the lineup, especially somebody like a Brayu who. I said, like in previous interviews, that um, his mom is very upset when he's not in the lineup and he doesn't have a valid excuse for it, even if he's having a rough stretch or looks visibly banged up like a couple games before when he was like limping on the field um, after a, a hit by a pitch in the knee. I thought, like, maybe he should have been out for that situation. Uh, I don't necessarily, uh, I mean, I, I trust Abreu's uh, pain tolerance. I don't necessarily trust his knowledge of whether pain tolerance will uh, translate into a diminished performance. Uh, for at least, you know, the next game or two. But, you know, he showed it. He showed that he was able to drive the ball. Uh, he showed that he was able to, you know, his upper body and lower body are both working. And his head certainly seemed to be in the game. So, yeah, hats <laughs> off to him. Yeah, Jose Abreu now in 38 games in 2021. His slash line is 255. His on-base percentage is 346. And his slugging is at 482. And the way that he's been hitting in May... Uh, that slugging percentage is going to be on its way above 500. That batting average is going to continue to climb for Jose Abreu because after, and let's face it, it wasn't the greatest April for Jose Abreu. But so far in the month of May in 13 games, Jim, Jose Abreu is hitting 349 with a 444 on base percentage and he's slugging 674. He's already got three home runs in the month of May in 13 games. And I know I keep bringing this up, but looking at the stat cast numbers as far as how opposing pitchers are pitching to him, uh, the four-seam fastball, he's getting better success in May after hitting just 190 batting average in the month of April against four-seamers and a you know very non-Jose Abreu slugging percentage against fastballs at 333. In May so far, Abreu's hitting 235 and he's slugging 471, so he's getting a lot more out of the, the four-seamers as far as making good contact. But my lord, his numbers against sliders and changeups are insane to start the season, Jim. Abreu against sliders is hitting 366 with a 707 slugging percentage. Changeups, he's hitting 429 with a 1.143 slugging percentage against changeups. And in the month of May, Good God, do not throw sliders to Jose Abreu, or I guess as a White Sox fan perspective, continue to throw sliders against Jose Abreu because he's 545 with a batting average against sliders and slugging 1.182. He's yet to strike out against a slider in the month of May. And uh, I guess when you're looking at these numbers and your opposing team, let's say like the Minnesota Twins, Jim, you have to be four-seam fastball dependent. 
but man, that's that's that is entering a danger zone against Jose Abreu because maybe with the way that he is swinging and the way that he has been playing so far after the first couple of weeks in May, that that is your best route right now because he's destroying sliders and changeups. Mm-hmm. But if he decides to shift focus and start searching for the fastball, he's going to make opposing pitchers pay like he did last year against that pitch. <laughs> it, it's funny. Uh, I was looking at his numbers and the number that jumped out to me, it's a two completely different approaches. You're looking at his pitch data. I looked at his baseball reference page, saw the uh, black ink with RBIs. He was leading the league in RBIs coming into the game. Raphael Devers now one ahead of him. But yeah, that's just like, yeah, you can look at some of the numbers. With Abreu, it seems like, you know, it's it's a feel thing. It's an eye test thing with Abreu. Like if he's going well, he's going well. If, if he's hitting, you know, if he, depending on you know, what pitch he's facing, if he's chasing, you know, stretching the strike zone too much, uh, this version, it was swinging at pitches too low, previous iterations, swinging at pitches too far inside, uh, or, you know, chasing sliders off the plate. He seemed to contain his problems to be fastballs low and, and uh, recognizing the spin, but not recognizing the location. And now it seems like he's got a better handle on that. So he's leading the league in RBIs or is now second. But it's almost like with RBIs, you know, that's a very... Sabermetrics 1.0 argument to argue about their value and, and say like Joe yeah, Carter. I, I love this stuff. But, but yeah, no, but I still love well, I mean, this like stat. when it comes to Abreu though, it's just like, is he leading the league in RBIs? He's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's just like, just a quick check. Like, yeah, he's good. Like he, he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's, he, he's doing what he's wired to do. Um, when he's not doing that, when he's has an RBI, uh, you know, when he's like, say, and he, and I guess the standards are so high. That if he's like on pace for a 90 RBI season, that's terrible. Like <laughs> something's right. wrong. But just you know, he uh, you know has a sequence uh, against the Royals and Twins where he drives in uh, eight over three games to get right back into it, and that's just you know basically have to trust him. And it's hard sometimes uh, because when he looks bad, he looks bad. You know, and then the double plays are a problem, and especially frustrating when he can kill a, a rally with uh, one out with one swing. But uh, yeah, I, I think the numbers I look at are, you know, I, I guess to really reduce it is RBIs and double plays. And he hasn't grown to a double play since April 29th. So uh, that's, I think he, he solved the low fastball issue, beating it into the ground. And uh, I think it's going to take a while for the league to figure out what's next. And the weather has been not consistent in the month of May for the White Sox. Again, I'm not a fan of the, well, the weather's warming up and he's going to hit well. No. <laughs> That's, if you want to make the argument well, that, hey, Jose Bray, you needs 100 plate appearances to get going now, I can buy that. I can definitely buy that. And then, of course, that syncs up with, hey, now we're in the month of May. The weather's good. So, yeah, that must mean that they're correlated. No, they are not. Well, n- normally I wouldn't, you know, I, I, I would agree with you, but I just think this year the wind patterns seem odd. Or the, uh, the, the, the airflow patterns, whatever, what, what have you, seem odd. Like Jorge Soler crushed that ball. Yeah, he did. And uh, Larry Garcia didn't have to feel for the wall. Yeah, and uh, I think we're going like, to get a, a stat cast article from Mike Petriello about this. The ball is not, it's not carrying to center field or to the gaps at guaranteed rate field. And I, I'm not sure yeah. how or wh- I don't think anything's really changed at the stadium. Down the foul poles, oh my God. If I see one more opposite field home run like Salvador Perez, I'm going to be that guy be like, you need to check the bat because there's no way that ball should have went 
out of the ballpark with that type of swing where the pitch location was. And it, it just didn't go over the fence. It, it went a couple rows into to right field. So the ball's really carrying, especially for right-handed hitters, down the right field line. Uh, and typically those are not great swings from a right-handed hitter. But I, I'm glad that you wrote about it, Jim, because my the eye test tells me, man, you know, Tim Anderson's hitting these rockets to right center field and they're getting caught. And it's like that wasn't caught last year. And it, it just seems like the ball's yeah. not carrying at all to center or to the gaps. Yeah, and Anderson has, uh, um, you know, kind of uh, strode out of the box a couple of times thinking he got a hold of one. Moncada's done the same thing. Abreu's had a homer taken away from him on the right center warning track. So some guy, you know, I think hitters will tell you a little bit. Um, you know, Anderson, you know, has his flair and Moncada has his uh, certain flair out of the box when he thinks he's going to hold a one to where maybe that'll occasionally lie. But I think I've seen it across enough batters and like even Solaire, like, you know, I think that's probably the most striking example, I think, of a hitter who thought he got all of it, you know, 106 miles per hour off the bat and just knocked down. Or, yeah. you know, the either, uh, you know, combination of the wind and maybe the, the ball drag too or something. But either way, it just got swatted down almost like a, uh, like an, like an asymptote, almost just falling straight to the warning track. So it's, it's, you know, that, that's uh, not necessarily cold weather thing, but just a, um, a wind pattern thing or success not being rewarded to certain fields that were very, uh, lucrative before. Yeah. You're going to have to pull the ball or in the Royals case, get incredibly lucky. And down the right field line, like, well, like, yeah, the, the James McCann swing. Exactly. That, that was his specialty. Just the, uh, right into the craft cave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. But Hey, Jose Abreu is warming up. And as I mentioned, he is crushing sliders and changeups. So I don't know why opposing pitchers are going to be relying on those pitches against Abreu. And I think he's going to see more of those pitches in this upcoming series against the Minnesota twins. And we'll preview that series later on the show, later in the show. Uh, but the four seamer, we're, we're starting to see better results from Jose Abreu again. And uh, if he starts searching for fastballs and if opposing pitchers feed him fastballs, I'm expecting those numbers to continue to increase. And then we're not going to have to worry about Jose Abreu's numbers uh, for the White Sox because they'll be back to where our expectations were. Uh, before the season. Uh, the other player that is really heating up in the month of May, and that is Tim Anderson. Tim Anderson so far in 13 games is hitting 345 with a 390 on base percentage and slugging 509 in the month of May. He's got two home runs. He's second on the team with 10 RBIs. And while Jose Abreu grabs the, the headlines and the highlights with his game-winning run that he scored on the wild pitch, it was Tim Anderson that set up that comeback for the White Sox, Jim, with his uh, going opposite field, the ground rule double to get things really going for the White Sox. And I, I, I don't know how, I don't know what else to say really about Tim Anderson. The his progress since we have been following his career in the minor leagues and when he has joined the White Sox and the terrible 2017 season, both on the field and off the field for him. And the way that he is hitting right now, everybody continues to ask that doesn't follow the White Sox. Like, come on, Anderson has to regress at some point, right? And it just, he's just proving everybody that, no, I'm not going to regress. I'm always going to have a high bat up. And here he is again. He's going to challenge for the American League batting title 
Uh, your Mercedes is starting to cool off, and here comes Tim Anderson doing what he's been doing the last couple of seasons. And I just feel like this combination of Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu, it, it, are these the two most critical position players the White Sox have? Now knowing how well this team is playing despite losing Luis Robert and Aloy Jimenez. I think it's fair, especially since Yohan Moncada hasn't quite gotten his stroke back yet and, and the exit velocity hasn't returned to what it was in 2019. He might be the other guy who's in that conversation, but without him, and if you can't necessarily count on him getting all the way back uh, you know, for the, I guess, the immediate future, then yeah, it's those two guys. And we've talked about Anderson before when he's gotten banged up that you know, there's, there's something extra he brings when he's going well. Uh, that other guys can't quite do. And I think you saw it in the field um, uh, during the Royals series is that, you know, when he was, you know, at shortstop, I think it was uh, Hanser Alberto on second, like he was kind of just jogging back and forth and, uh, you know, messing around with Alberto and, and seemed like he was just, you know, having fun and relaxing the field and, and um, you know, kind of trying to distract the, the Royals. And then when he got on second, well, first of all, he stole second. And then he, uh, with, with Adam Eaton at the plate, and then, he was really distracting Brady Singer so much that Singer threw a pickoff move to the shortstop who wasn't covering. Like he, right. like yeah. Singer wheeled around and realized nobody was covering second, kind of just angled his throw to go to where a fielder was or else Anderson would have been able to take third. But, you know, he's just having that kind of fun with it um, where he just feels like the, the field is his. And sure enough, you know, I, I don't know how, you know, if you had to put a percentage on it, how uh, directly responsible uh, Anderson was for the outcome of Eaton's at bat. But, you know, the the outcome was that a one-two pitch for a pitcher had been thrown very well all game was grooved and uh, Eaton hit over the fence for a go-ahead homer. So, uh, you know, whether you want to give, uh, you know, Anderson assist on that or not, like that was, uh, I'm inclined to just based on what happened before that pitch. And then, yeah, he gets on base, you know, to start the inning scores, the uh, tying run is involved in that. So he was, you know, involved in the two crooked numbers and uh, when he's at the top of the order and when they're having the, the, the problems in the two spot behind him, his ability to you know, get on base and then make extra bases happen one way or another is huge. And defensively, he has, he's really progressed. Yeah, he's sharpened up. Um, you know, the, I, my knock on him before is that he'd make the occasional error. I mean, I, I think he's had like, you know, evolutions. Like one uh, was the player who would make sensational plays and also like irritating errors. And then he was the guy who cut down the errors, but really didn't make great plays on the edges of his range either, was just kind of a below average ordinary shortstop. And now it seems like he's starting to complete more of those tougher plays, the ranging plays, the ones where he has to uh, collect and pirouette or plant his feet and throw across his body. Like he's, the throws are getting more accurate. Uh, the errors are dropping down. I think now you're going to see that be rewarded more in his metrics. So uh, you know, chances, you know, or there's possibility that this is, you know, fielding kind of ebbs and flows and he has hot streaks and cold streaks. But right now it seems like he's more of that complete defensive shortstop. We thought he might have been in his first few seasons in the league. Yeah, I just think after this weekend and with the way that both of these guys are playing and Yara Mercedes is cooling off and we're about, we're going to talk about two hitters that are also cooling off Then I have some concerns about. Uh, on how they've been performing, especially May or even the last 30 days uh, since mid-April. But with Abreu and Anderson continuing to play at this high level, it's going to give the White Sox an opportunity to win every single game, even though it gives off the perception that, oh man, this offense is really struggling just to score three 
or four runs. But as we saw in the ninth inning, if the White Sox aren't a position where they're going to have Tim Anderson lead off that inning and knowing that Jose Abreu is lurking, you know, I got a lot of confidence that Anderson's going to find a way to get on base. And that means that you're going to have to face Jose Abreu most likely. And the way that he's hitting in May, that's going to be trouble for opposing teams. And that's what we saw in Sunday against Kansas City. And that's why I'm a believer that the White Sox can continue to win in this way. It's fun when we watch them play four straight games and they score at least nine runs in each of those games and everyone's clicking and everyone's hitting. It's a lot of fun, but that's not reality throughout the course of a 162 game season. The White's not with that attitude. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess, I guess my poor attitude that it's, it's not a reality, but you know, the fact is that you're going to play more four, three, three, two games than nine to seven type of ball games. Uh, so I, I think that the White Sox being able to find ways to, grind out these types of wins and come from behind and put up two runs in the bottom of the ninth inning and steal a win against Kansas City uh, is a great thing uh, to watch. Now, moving over to the cold hitters, let's start with Nick Madrigal, Jim. Uh, And May is not going well for Nick Madrigal right now, and I think he is in between with his swing. Uh, He is currently hitting 200. He has yet to walk in May, so he's got a 200 on base percentage. And he's slugging 220. And now his season on base percentage is dangerously, uh, is it below 300 or is it right at 300? It's getting close to being below 300. Uh, And I just, it's at 306. So right now his season slash line is hitting 270 with a 306 on base percentage and slugging 341. And the reason why I say Nick Madrigal to me, Jim, feels in between. Because with his swing, he's starting to hit more fly balls. I don't know if he wants to prove that he can hit for power, but that's not his game right now. (laughs) He just needs to do what he was doing in April. That was sufficient and very productive for the White Sox. But I feel like he's going away from that. Yeah, the uh, exit velocity of 16, that was uh, pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, the, the fly ball, especially like his fly balls are going to right field. So it doesn't strike me. That's not a power swing. I think it's more of a matter of, um, part of me wonders if, you know, w- with his approach and with his, you know, how satisfying it is, and, and a lot of uh, fans and writers, especially like ones either who gravitate towards like idiosyncratic players or, or more old school players who you know, put the ball in play, but they love Nick Madrigal's low strikeout rate. And they love that, you know, he doesn't strike out like it's, you know, 5% or less. And, um, you know, his contact rate's insane and he never gives away at bats. But some of the way, you know, I, I guess some of the contact he makes is effectively giving away at bats, or at least like it's, it's giving it away in terms of like, it, it makes it hard for him to do, do any sort of damage. And, uh, in, in this year of baseball, 2021, I think that is a form of giving up <laughs> or at least you're not being competitive. So I'm looking right now at his, uh, his spray charts for, um, for me. And yeah, just like a lot of weak opposite field flies and it almost seems like he, you know, kind of like your mean Mercedes, he's a very visible example of somebody who really cuts it down with two strikes, you know, goes no stride, takes a deeper crouch, uh, shortens the bat waggle and just wants to put the bat to ball. I think, you know, magical, you know, it's hard to tell because he, you know, his, his entire swing is more compact and, and his hitting zone is a lot smaller, 
but it would seem like he would benefit from, you know, having Mercedes, you know, I guess one and two strike approach or aggressiveness attack path more often in situations where like contact isn't the end all be all. And, mm. you know, just when it comes to two strikes, just the contact is so weak and, and I kind of give up on the at bat. Like there, you know, I, I think because just the way pitchers are, attacking him and the way he's not taking walks and how big his hitting zone is. I think it just, it can expand to where like, yeah, it's, it's great that he can fight off pitches three inches uh, off the plate and four inches above the plate. But what good does that do if the walk never comes and, it, and mm. if the damage never comes? So it would seem to me like, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing a few more strikeouts from him if it just kind of recenters his approach to just figuring out what pitches he can actually sting. Yeah. I just wonder if he needs to start pulling the ball more, maybe it'll help increase as far as the quality contact. I, I'm, I'm just grasping at straws here and just thinking aloud on what adjustments Nick Magical needs to make because these fly balls to right field, they're not going to cut it. I know that he hit one over Joey Gallo's head once, and that was a walk-off hit, and that was a great moment. But he's not getting that same type of success, and now his numbers are taking a big dive, and I just feel like... It's kind of like the Willie Mays Hayes type of approach. If you remember Major League Two, or I actually it was Major League, like hit the ball on the ground. Now you don't want Nick Magical to hit grounders because he's not that fast and he's not going to beat out a lot of infield hits. But you want to see more line drives for Nick Magical because at least if he if he can stay between that I don't know nine to fifteen percent launch angle then he's going to rack up more hits and then he's going to get back into rhythm. And then when Tim Anderson gets up to the plate, he's got guys on base to do some damage right now. Anderson's not getting those opportunities because magical's not getting on base at the same rate that he was in April. And now you're starting to see some really ugly numbers. And I'm sorry, a Nick magical that doesn't hit 300 or has a 340 plus on base percentage is not that useful for the White Sox. And if this continues to Memorial Day, Jim, we're going to start getting questions about from White Sox fans asking, should Danny Mendick play second base more? We have a question in P.O. Sox about that exact topic. Oh, excellent. So we'll answer <laughs> uh, that but, later in the show. <laughs> yeah, but I, the one thing I will say is like looking at a spray chart, you know, when you see it update tomorrow, there will be a dot in left field. And there was a nice little line drive swing that he just kind of muscled a, a line drive out late in the game on Sunday. And I'm hoping there's more of that. I'm hoping there's you know more of those like just little, um, I would guess the exit velocity is like 90 miles per hour, but just the launch angle you mentioned, but just, you know, uh, a drive over the head of infielders that outfielders can't catch. And that seemed like he found that swing early on and... Uh, you know, there are probably going to be ebbs and flows in this game uh, just because of how insane that bat-to-ball ability is that I think eventually he can kind of lose track of what exactly he's supposed to be doing at the plate uh, versus, you know, just... You know, I think sometimes it seems like his purpose is not striking out versus actually reaching. And uh, here's hoping that that swing, that line drive to left, there, there's more where that came from. The other hitter that's cold right now is Adam Eaton. Now, Adam Eaton had a very good Sunday for the White Sox. He had a home run to give them the lead. He walked a couple of times. He laid down the sacrifice bunt. Uh, that moved Tim Anderson over to third base. Wade Davis almost threw that ball away. Uh, that would have been really interesting if he had, because uh, then Anderson would have scored the game-time run off that bunt. But Adam Eaton had a good Sunday, and that's good for Adam Eaton. 
because his numbers the last 30 days are not looking pretty. He had a very strong start to the season, Jim, and here we are thinking, okay, maybe this is the dead cat bounce that the White Sox need after Adam Eaton had a very poor 2020 season. But as I pull up his last 30 days, which covers 21 games, Adam Eaton is hitting 191 with a 286 on base percentage, and he's slugging 353. And I'm sorry, he can't be hitting second in the lineup if he's going to continue to hit like this uh, over the last 30 days. And that's a much larger sample size than we had in the first two weeks of the season. So where do you stand right now with Adam Eaton? Because if he's in the lineup, that's fine. He makes good plays in right field, but I'd rather see him bat in the lower third of the lineup, maybe bat seventh in the lineup, not batting second at the moment if he's going to continue to struggle like this. Well, the time frame you mentioned is the roughly corresponds with that game where his knee buckled on him three times. And I thought that was just something that just kind of went unsaid. Um, you know, Eaton really didn't say it was a problem. Uh, Larusa made a vague uh, allusion to saying like that his legs were hurting him a little bit, but I would say maybe downplayed it relative to just how it seemed to affect his numbers. And I'm guessing that's partially professional pride and partially just, you know, the outfield situation, the crisis being what it is. You know, Eaton probably feels there's value in suiting up and going out there and, you know, there's nobody better and Larissa might feel the same thing. So I think there's that component to it. And, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, the last uh, two of the last three games, he's reached base three times. There was that, uh, uh, the second game, the double header, he had a double and two walks. So, the, the quality of plate appearances are there, at least against right-handed pitching. Um, I think he did have a couple of uh, terrible bats where he swung at some curveballs well in the dirt to where I think he just might have been a manifestation of the struggles that he was having. But there does seem to be a little bit of return to the plate recognition he had, at least over the last few games. So I'm hoping, you know, that that's a sign of an upswing there. But I'm hoping also that... Uh, you know, when it comes to just right field and, and him being pretty much a platoon bat now because his lefty, his approach against lefties doesn't really seem like it's conducive to much success against them. You know, and I, I don't think he's going to return to the form of an everyday outfielder that he was, uh, everyday leadoff man that he was with the White Sox, you know, with his first run. But as long as he can be like a good platoon outfielder, can evade, uh, occasionally, you know, stand in against lefties, but hopefully, you know, Danny Mendick can fill that role now and, you know, later on, uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, Adam Engel or uh, Brian Goodwin, you know, if he gets up to speed. But one way or another, I think there will be a way to mitigate that to where hopefully the quality of Eaton's at-bats against righties are good enough to bat, like, in the top half. And you don't feel, you know, maybe it's not the optimal use of a two-spot, but at least it's better than it was. Yeah, Adam Eaton right now is two for 18 against left-hand, left-handers to start the 2021 season. And uh, I, I don't think it's going to get a lot better. I just, again, he did have a good Sunday and maybe that unlocks something for him. But we're going to be talking about the White Sox twin series here in a moment. And Jay Happ's going to pitch in that opening game. And maybe Adam Eaton shouldn't be playing that game. He might be playing that game because Tony LaRusso likes to play the hot hand. And he may think, well, Adam Eaton's got the hot hand. So I'm going to put him in the lineup and have him bat second against the lefty and that will that type of manager move pregame will make me scratch my head uh, but you know he again he had a good game on Sunday but he hasn't had a good 30 days and 
If he doesn't pick it up, then I just think that adds more pressure as far as making sure that Adam Engel is caught up to speed or try to use other options as well to spell time for Adam Eden when a lefty is on the mound. Because uh, I just, at this moment, I don't see him coming back in 2022 if he continues to hit like this, Jim. And it's May. I mean, we're mid-May where I'm already making that proclamation that, no, I don't see the White Sox picking up Adam Eden's option at this moment. Yeah, they could do better. I'm, I'm just curious right now because I was looking at it before the game. Uh, fortunately, baseball references these place to look it up, but they don't have immediate stats. But I think Jock Peterson and Adam Eaton were basically level with each other when it came to production. And that's something I've been watching all season because I had a strong preference for Peterson just on a hunch. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed that he might fare better out of Los Angeles and getting regular playing time. So yeah, Eaton's at a 715 OPS, Peterson's uh, at uh, oh, 674. So Eaton uh, improved his lot over the last few games to have some separation there. Wow, I did not know that Jack Peterson was struggling that bad. I mean, he had an awesome spring training. Yeah, well, he got <laughs> off well, he got off to a really lousy start, then he was starting to revive himself a little bit, corresponding with Eaton's drop. Like, his OBP is 333, whereas Eaton's is 321, so he has the edge in OBP. He's just not right. slugging at all. Hmm. But they've been hovering around each other the last week or so, and uh, just one I'm keeping an eye on just uh, playing my own hunch. If there's a righty on the mound, yeah, I think he should be in right field for the White Sox. I just, I just don't like him hitting behind Tim Anderson at the moment. Sure, it worked on Sunday, but... The last 30 games, it has been far and few in between where it has been working for Adam Eaton and the White Sox, but behind Tim Anderson. And we got a P.O. Sox question about that as well. So we're teasing these P.O. Sox questions. We'll we'll address as far as the lineup later in the show as you guys had questions regarding that. But coming up next on the Sox Machine podcast, Jim will have the minor league report. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff. And it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Minor League Report. We'll start in Charlotte, where Gavin Sheets put an exclamation point on another big week with a two-homer game against Norfolk on Sunday. 
He's up to three on the season, giving him a slash line of 367 with a 415 OBP and 633 slugging percentage. He split his innings between first base and right field, and he might warrant a look if the White Sox feel they need a left-handed option who isn't Jake Lamb. Speaking of Jakes, Jake Berger stayed healthy the entire week and homered in three straight games at one point. He's hitting just 216 with a 275 OBP, but his slugging percentage is over 500, and he struck out in just 20% of his plate appearances, so he's doing just fine. Then again, it seems like everybody enjoys hitting in Charlotte. Sebi Zavala has a 1039 OPS and four homers despite striking out nearly 40% of the time, and Blake Rutherford's 894 OPS would be a career high by far. The only one who isn't hitting is Brian Goodwin, who's bringing up the rear with a 161 average and a 188 OBP, although three of his five hits are doubles. The inverse says that it should be tough pitching there, and that's largely been true, which makes Jonathan Stever's first three starts encouraging. He's walked 6 over 12 innings, but he's also struck out 14. He's faring better than Jimmy Lambert, who has been roughed up for 8 runs over 5 and 2 thirds innings in his 3 outings. Tyler Johnson might be having the worst time of everybody, with a 13.50 ERA and 7 walks to just 4 strikeouts over 3 and a third innings. The good and bad performances have balanced out, as evidenced by the team's 6-6 six six record through 2 weeks. Down in Birmingham, a veteran Barons team is racking up the wins without star power, leading their unnamed division in the tentatively named AA South by one game at 9-3. Mike Rodolfo's slow start continued into the second week, although his 175 average has been punctuated by a few homers. Carlos Perez is hitting a relatively empty 256, and Cade McClure has been fine, but not great. But some lesser prospects are stepping in to fill the void. Romy Gonzalez, an 18th round pick out of the University of Miami in the 2018 draft, is hitting 438 with a 526 OBP and a 938 slugging percentage, good for a 1464 OPS. Craig Didalo is also slugging over 900 with four homers, although he's striking out 30% of the time. Taekwon Forbes looks only less impressive by comparison, as he's hitting 333 with a 934 OPS and an improved 21% strikeout rate. The pitching has been similarly fine, with A-ball innings eaters like Blake Battenfield and John Park doing the same at Double A. Connor Pilkington is probably the biggest standout in terms of performance and pedigree. The third-round pick of the 2019 draft underwhelmed in his pro debut two years ago, but he's thrown a strong pair of five-inning starts to open up his Double A line, with 10 strikeouts against just eight base runners. The Winston-Salem Dash raised their record to 7-5 after four straight wins over Hickory, and Luis Curbelo is doing the driving. He's up to five homers over his first nine games, which already ties his previous A-ball high of five over 64 games with Kannapolis back in 2019. The rest of the lineup is trying to keep its head above water. Yolbert Sanchez is still looking for his first extra base hit. Lennon Sosa has just one walk against 18 strikeouts. Luis Mieses' average dropped at 175, and Bryce Bush hasn't played since Wednesday. The pitching has propped up the offense, particularly 2018 third-day draft picks. Jason Billis, whose first couple years in the pros had big strikeout totals matched by an inflated walk column, has opened a season by striking out 18 against just two walks over nine and two-thirds innings. Davis Martin recovered from an ugly high-A debut to allow just one earned run over his next nine innings, with 12 strikeouts against three walks. Isaiah Carranza has also impressed for a guy who didn't have a recorded pro pitch to his name before the season, even though he was selected three drafts ago. As for the Kannapolis Cannonballers, at least they won a game. Sure, it was a 1-0 nail-biter against the Fayetteville Woodpeckers, who had previously rallied from a 6-0 deficit, then no-hit the Ballers to win the previous two games, then routed them by a score of 12-2 in the series finale. But the phrase, a win's a win, has never carried so much weight as Kannapolis has won an 11 to start the season. The good news is mostly contained to shortstop Jose Rodriguez, who is hitting 294 with an 808 OPS and has kept the strikeout rate under control so far. 
The rest of the lineup looks like it could have really used a short-season rookie league. James Beard is the only other position player prospect hitting over 200, at least since Chase Krogman hit the injured list. Things are a little brighter on the pitching side, as both Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist threw impressive outings in their most recent turns against Fayetteville. Five scoreless innings for Thompson, three for Dahlquist. Jared Kelly is the prep arm who might not be ready for A-ball just yet, as he's issued nine walks on top of seven hits over his first five innings, giving him a 14-40 ERA thus far. The Cannonballers return home to face Columbia this week in hopes of hosting their first victory at their new downtown park. The Dash traveled to New Jersey to take on the Jersey Shore Blue Claws. The Barons are back to Birmingham to battle the Biscuits. And the Knights hit the road for the first time to play the Durham Bulls. That's it for the minor league report. Visit SoxMachine.com because I'll be introducing a new bi-weekly feature called Farm Fortnite with a more detailed overview of how White Sox prospects have performed over the previous two weeks. It'll be exclusive to Patreon supporters, so if you don't already subscribe, consider doing so at patreon.com slash socksmachine, where you'll get an ad-free podcast, an ad-free site, and bonus content on both starting for $2 a month. The Chicago White Sox now head to Minneapolis for a three-game series to face the Minnesota Twins after sweeping the Minnesota Twins at home last week, and hopefully those good vibes continue for the Chicago White Sox. The Minnesota Twins had a really odd series this past weekend at home against Oakland. They lost the opener, but had a dramatic comeback in Game 2, thanks to Miguel Sano hitting a opposite field home run that caught the overhang in right field, really shocking the Oakland A's as the Minnesota Twins won that game. And they had a good start in Game 3, but once again, the bullpen melts down for the Twins, and they lost the game on a wild pitch, and Oakland was able to win that series two out of three. The Minnesota Twins have a 13-25 and record in Major League Baseball. That is the worst record in Major League Baseball right now. That's how bad things are in Minneapolis, as the Minnesota Twins are last place in the American League Central. Your pitching probables for this series between the White Sox and the Twins, starting on Monday, May 17th at 640 p.m. Central Time. It'll be Dallas Keuchel for the White Sox against Jay Happ. So a rematch of that barn burner that we saw in Chicago where the White Sox put up nine runs on Jay Happ on their way of scoring 13. So hopefully that happens again. On Tuesday, we got another rematch. Again, this is a 6.40 p.m. Central Time start. It'll be Lance Lynn for the White Sox against Michael Pineda, which Michael Pineda always gives the White Sox a tough time. So expect that to be a low-scoring affair. And on Wednesday, getaway day for the White Sox as they make their way to the Bronx after the game. On Wednesday, May 19th, this is a 12.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Lucas Giolito against Matt Shoemaker. And Jim, the White Sox have proven that they can find a way to score runs in bunches against Jay Happ, and they can do enough against Michael Pineda to keep the game tied or close and then really... Uh, score as far as opportunities against the Twins bullpen to be able to steal those games. And Matt Shoemaker has not been good this year for the Minnesota Twins. So when you're looking at this from a White Sox offensive perspective, you got to be really confident. The only area that I am going to be paying attention a lot to is that game three. And it is again on Lucas Giolito because I feel like he's still searching for a clean outing, a quality start outing as it's, uh, it's not been fun for him the last three to four starts. Yeah, starting with Giolito, I, I think the changeup action that he'd been lacking 
he found in his last start, like the good floating fluttery changeup that doesn't really dive away to like a predictable hitting path, but just hovers above bats. You know, the, the high changeups that looked so baffling before baffled again and got the swinging strikes he was uh, lacking. And he also like threw it more than this fastball, which I think shows that he liked it. So that was encouraging the fastball location. Uh, not so much. So I think he's still searching for that, but Fortunately, he's facing Shoemaker, and I think I'm looking at that start as what the White Sox do against Shoemaker because he's like a righty, um, and the White Sox have struggled against righties, but he's given up like 10 homers over 30 innings, something like that. Like, he's, he's just been serving up the long ball. He's got a 6.62 ERA, um, and, you know, seeing ordinary righties, you know, shut down the White Sox during the Kansas City series, even, you know, Mike Miner wasn't, uh, you know, he was lefty, but he got the rare win against him and I'm kind of looking to half start side-eyed the same way just like hoping that uh two starts against the same lefty doesn't uh Hap doesn't figure out something to try that shuts the White Sox down but I, I think if Pineda succeeds against them that's kind of predictable but Shoemaker feels like the kind of righty they should beat up on and kind of need to beat up on um you know not not to make too much of one game but just I think if they're going to have this lineup that doesn't have the strong left-handed bats going right now and has right-handed bats with pronounced splits then I think when a weaker righty presents himself, uh, especially one who gives up homers, it would certainly behoove the White Sox to uh, take him up on that and hit a few balls out of the yard and and pad their stats against righties uh, with that kind of opportunity. You know, for Lance Lynn, he hasn't been able to go deep into his starts, uh, but he's able to carry the pitch workload, throwing over 100 pitches. Anything in particular that you're hoping to see out of Lance Lynn as, again, he's really trying to build himself back up after spending some time on the injured list? Well, the the last start was better defense. Like, I think he had to throw something like 20-something extra pitches based on plays not made before him or calls not gotten. So uh, that wasn't representative, I think. The other, uh, the other starts since his injury were more just inefficiency, not missing bats, falling off, you know, not, not getting squared up, but also not putting pitches exactly where we wanted him, especially I think the uh, the four-seamer wasn't quite working for him. But last time out, I think he pitched the way he should have. He just, uh, you know, part of his game is, you know, especially when he's trying to be efficient, is letting the ball in play with without tremendous exit velocity or without like any kind of really scary, um, you know, contact that doesn't look scary off the bat. Uh, but the plays need to be made behind him. And they weren't, and so he uh, you know, struggled a little bit to close out innings. So hopefully the defense improves, and uh, the White Sox uh, will give him an easy start for once, and you know, he holds up his end of the bargain. Yeah, and hopefully the White Sox continue to have the same type of success in Minneapolis uh, as they did in Chicago last week. A sweep would be great, but really have to focus at this moment that, well, I guess maybe the expectation is the White Sox should sweep the Twins because the Twins are the worst team in baseball right now. Uh, I don't think talent-wise that they are, but the record is. Um, But I'm hoping the White Sox still find a way to win this series and continue their winning ways. And uh, again, if the offense can really uh, just destroy Jay Happ like they did last week, uh, putting up nine runs on him while he only allowed six runs in his previous five start, I think that would go a long way for the White Sox, especially because they'll see more of the Twins' bullpen again. And the more that they see them, the more comfortable that they will be. And I think they'll help them with the Michael Pineda start. And if they can win those first two games, then, yeah, the expectation is the White Sox, for me at least, should sweep the Minnesota Twins. And 
if they do that, the Twins are going to be 13 and 28, and uh, I don't know what they're going to do. And that would be a great launching point for the White Sox as they make their way to the Bronx to face a New York Yankees team that's playing a lot better baseball as of late. And that should be a really good series and maybe a preview of the American League Championship Series in 2021. We'll be recapping this White Sox Twin Series on Sox Machine Live on Thursday, May 20th. So you could be able to check that out on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash Sox Machine or on the website at SoxMachine.com. But you guys had a lot of questions for us, so let's answer them next in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter. Follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. But again, we've been getting so many questions from our Patreon supporters. We're well over 500 Patreon supporters, which is awesome. Thank you guys so much for your support. So all the questions again this week for P.O. Sox are from our Patreon supporters. And the first question that we've got, Jim, from our Patreon supporter comes from Chef Eric. And Chef Eric is asking, does Tony La Russa have some kind of aversion to the two spot and putting an effective hitter in that spot? I know complaining about the lineup is an annoying White Sox Twitter topic, but I do feel like Tony La Russa putting in struggling hitters like Lurie Garcia, Adam Eaton, or Jake Lamb in that spot is a little baffling, even if Jake Lamb and Adam Eaton have homered recently. Yeah, I, I think you know there are a few things. One is that he likes Abreu batting fourth, and there are reasons. You know, there's the, there's the matter that he's. Uh, been producing better since he dropped to the fourth spot. Um, you know, but there's also a, a real sabermetric reason for batting somebody like a Brave fourth is because there's a better chance of him coming to the plate with runners on base, batting fourth and batting third. There are more opportunities batting third to come to the plate with no runners on and two outs. So that's why you do that. So, you know, if, if you feel like a Brave wants is most dangerous batting fourth, then, uh, you know, that that freezes his thinking in one regard. I think the other thing is that he liked the way it looked when Adam Eaton was looking good, and he's trying to you know catch that lightning in a bottle again. And he liked the way that the lineup looked when Luis Robert was there. Uh, and and so just uh, I think based on how it worked with other players, and Eaton's the only one standing of those two, it just feels like he's preserving Anderson first, uh, Abreu fourth, Moncada third, and just trying to you know, kind of feel a way, his way around for like the most likely guy to stick there next. And I guess Jake Lamb batted there once because he, you know, he's been able to draw a walk and actually see some pitches. Garcia is the one I didn't get. Um, he did draw that heroic walk uh, the other day, but I, I don't think you're going to see that from him. So I didn't like seeing that one, but I think Eaton, you know, against righties, you know, he's not the most, you know, the, the, the terrible choice to bat there as long as you don't, you know, pitch a lefty against him. I, I think when it comes to the second spot, you know, some ideas I have is one Grandal just because his ability to draw walks helps there and his ability to see a lot of pitches can help Anderson run if Anderson's on base. So I wouldn't mind seeing him like get a shot up there. Um, Andrew Vaughn kind of along the same lines against the lefty uh, wouldn't be terrible to, to see him there. Um, but otherwise I think, you know, it, the hopes kind of rest on Eaton being somebody who, you know, against righties at least, and rested enough to where his legs aren't beat up, to where he can resume his old production and just be somebody who at least gets on base to mitigate that. Otherwise, I think 
you're kind of left with, you know, maybe Moncada moves up and then you have, you know, Mercedes, if he gets heats back up, you know, batting third or hmm. Grandal batting third, but you know, they can maybe, you know, mess some guys around with the, the third spot and see who works there. If you really like a Bray batting fourth, but uh, right now, I think just, he's not giving up on Eaton because Eaton, you know, as we saw, you know, as we talked about, you know, reaching base three times in, in two different games recently, like the possibility is there. He just needs to be, closer to 100% and facing a ready to make that happen. You remember Mercedes hitting third. See, I hadn't thought about that possibility. I, I'm i in favor of shortening the gap between Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu, but I, I understand your perspective and what you brought as far as saying that, you know, it's better if Jose Abreu hits with more guys on base and he has a better opportunity of doing that, batting cleanup. Yeah, I, I guess... I'm intrigued now. I'm thinking more of a Euro Mercedes batting third for the White Sox because of his two-strike approach. And his swing is getting long in the first two strikes in, in his at-bats, Jim. Like, that load foot needs to get to the ground sooner than it has been. I just feel like it's his load is a little too long as far as making that decision. And that's why he's falling off a, a lot of pitches or hitting these weak flares to opposite field and none of the power pulls that we were seeing at the beginning of the season. So it must be a timing type of issue and opposing pitchers are disrupting that for Mercedes. But I am intrigued now because he does put the ball in play with two strikes. And if Tim Anderson gets on base, he can get some things going and maybe gets Anderson to scoring position for Abreu, even though it's two outs, but it's still a run scoring opportunity. Hmm. You may have sold me on Yuma Mercedes batting third. Yeah, I mean, I ultimately, as long as you don't have the player in the top five who you're just hoping to get past, and that's, I think, what annoyed me about that Garcia walk, and uh, thankfully Garcia drew that walk. But just, you know, hearing Steve Stone or Jason Benny say, like, and if, uh, you know, Garcia can, you know, survive this with bad, Abreu's on, you know, or Mancada's on deck, or, you know, Garcia will allow Jose Abreu to come and play, like, that shouldn't come down to Garcia. I mean, maybe it comes down to him if he's batting ninth, but... Just like betting seconds, you know, I really only like that play if you're prepared to pinch hit for him later because, like, Andrew Vaughn has a game off and he might be able to face the lefty or, you know, your main Mercedes is off. Or somebody who's who poses more of a threat can come in during a high leverage at bat to uh, capitalize on that opportunity and either drive in a run before Abreu or in Makata or get the game to Mankata and Abreu either way. But, um, yeah, that's... You know, whatever order they show up in the top five don't doesn't really matter just as long as somebody isn't in the middle of that. You're just hoping to endure their at-bats and that they don't screw it up too much. That's, I think, what bums <laughs> me out. Don't screw up badly. Don't bum me out. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Chef Eric, thank you so much for your question. Our next question is very straight to the point, Jim, and it comes from Mark. Mark's asking, more Danny Mendick, less Nick Madrigal. Uh, no, I think for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, Mendick, I think he starts, you know, at least based on the, the two seasons we've seen him start, maybe you can count as September too, but he tends to start hot and then cool off. And like this year, he started out four for six. He's been four for 24 since. So the numbers on the whole are, you know, respectable, the 267 average and OBP above 400, but he's cooled off as of late. And uh, I think, you know, when the more you see him, the more you realize he's just kind of a guy and, and, and uh, you know, a decent bench guy. But 
really not somebody you want to see starting for any length of time. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I think the one reason, or I guess the one way I'd like to see him play more is any situation where Garcia and Billy Hamilton are in the same lineup. I don't have an uh, objection to seeing Hamilton in there um, just because he plays a good center field and occasionally can make stuff happen. Uh, but I think when Garcia and Hamilton are both there, that's, I just think, you just notice it too much. <laughs> you notice when there are two of them uh, versus one. And so if you have Hamilton in there to get some reps and play some defense, that's when I wouldn't mind seeing, uh, you know, Mendick and Wright versus Garcia and Wright or, or wherever Garcia is playing, just because uh, I feel like the quality of the bats are better. You know, he sees more pitches, can more of a threat to draw a walk, um, you know, more of a you're not going to be at a risk of just seeing him have these give up at bats that Garcia often has. So I think that's the way I like to see him play. And, you know, maybe occasionally spot Madrigal at second, but I think with Madrigal, I think the plan and just kind of the, the shape of this roster really counts on him being a productive player playing you know, basically all the time. And I think he's just going to have patches as he, you know, goes through his first full season that he's, you're going to have to endure and just, you know, based on how hard of a living um, you know, his brand of baseball is and you know, having to hit 300 or close to it to be a major league starter. Um, I, I think he's can occasionally have some stretches where you're going to wonder like, what's he, what's he doing? Like how did the white Sox draft this guy fourth overall? Like that, I think that's just a matter of um, the, the lack of quality contact that he can, you know, go a long time um, just, producing nothing. So I'm hoping that as, you know, the season goes along and as this month goes along, he'll realize like he'll look at the spray charts. He'll, he'll be talking with Frank Medicino and, you know, Shelly Duncan and who have you, and just say like, okay, this is not working for you. They're attacking you this way. They're attacking you this way. Two strikes. Don't be afraid to strike out looking. Don't be afraid to, uh, um, you know, strike out swinging. If you feel like you can do damage and you just like swing through a fastball, it's hittable. Just do more, do a little bit more just to find, you know, recenter his approach and get back to where he was in April. And I think there's going to be a battle here and there just as he goes you know, through the entire league for the first time and uh, goes through a full season and, you know, both learning the league and, you know, playing while banged up and, and uh, just the grind of a full season. Um, I think he's eventually going to find a a middle ground that's productive enough to serve the White Sox purpose at second base. But I think for the time being, you know, it's going to be ugly and there might be some stretches where you don't know if he's going to pull out of it. And, you know, there's probably at some point uh, a stretch where, you know, LaRusa might have to go to Mendick for a couple of games or, or, you know, put Garcia there or somehow mix it up to where Magical is not like the primary starter for a series, but uh, the White Sox are going to need him somehow. So may as well just kind of grin your, uh, yeah, Grin and Barrett, grit your teeth. <laughs> I almost mixed those two up. And uh, just bat him ninth, and hopefully he can right himself. How long is Nick Madrigal's leash overall for his career? If he continues to sputter in 2021, are we talking oh. about the White Sox finding upgrades at second base in the offseason, or do they go with Madrigal again in 2022? Hmm. Uh, I would say that... You know, if you're talking about like, you know, what are you saying? Like OPS below like 700 OBP, like they, they, they cut, they cut Yomer Sanchez yeah, like, because okay. he made too much money after winning the gold glove. And they, so, they view that Yomer Sanchez was not a $6 million player. 
Yeah. Okay. So you, if, if like a standard Yolmer season, like a two win season is that guy, it seems like, uh, they could, you know, look for depth as soon as the season or next season, especially if like Danny Mendick does not materialize as somebody who can be a part-time starter. Um, I can see a case where they bring in like utility infielder, the way that second baseman were kind of, uh, undervalued relative to their production last winter. If that happens again, I could see them bringing in some help, uh, somebody to maybe, you know, add a bit of competition to the position just because, uh, yeah, if he has these outages for that long, um, to where, you know, he's not just hitting these, these kind of meek fly balls to right field. So yeah, that that's not, those aren't major league at bats and you might have to do something about it. It would be a pretty, a uh, pretty shocking fall if they added somebody. But yeah, if he goes five months without uh, producing like a major league starter for uh, you know w- weeks at a time over the course of those five months, then they're going to have to do something because, uh, you know, both it's a thin roster and also second base seems to be pretty cheap for finding help. That is true. I will have to, I will say this. If Nick Madrigal was in this year's draft, he's not going to the first round. Not with what we are hearing right now, especially with teams cutting scouting even more on the amateur side and being more reliant on data. Two big numbers for hitters now, especially in the college ranks, because all of these college stadiums have TrackMan now. They want to know what your average exit velocity is and what your max exit velocity is. This is why Henry Davis, my draft crush, the catcher for Louisville, is now consider it to be a number one pick overall because he has tremendous exit velocity numbers. And it seems like that major league baseball teams believe that is something that translates well as a player continues their development in the minor leagues. And then finally reaches the major leagues is can you hit the crap out of the ball? Hmm. Knowing what we know today and how teams are stacking their draft boards. And that is all of a sudden Coming to the forefront is exit velocity. Nick Madrigal doesn't go fourth overall. Nick Madrigal is not a first round pick in this year's draft. Not a first rounder? Not a first rounder. Because I can see him having appeal to a team that doesn't want to miss. Like later in the first round, like second half of the first round. He could be a comp pick after a team makes a first round pick. Like the Cincinnati Reds, they have a comp pick because they lost Trevor Bauer in free agency. So they would use their second, quote-unquote, first-round pick uh, is their comp pick for Nick Magical. I could see that. Like, he would go in the top 40 in this year's draft because college hitting is also really poor. But if you're sitting, like, where the White Sox are going to be at pick 22, you got a prep player that's posting better exit velocity numbers at these showcases than Nick Magical is during his college games. But wasn't he also faster in college? It's the same speed, Jim. It's just the game's much slower. Everybody talks up the Pac-12. It's not that great. It's not I mean, like, like he's playing SEC of, like, baseball. His running speed, like his, his, his times down the line and such. Maybe. Weren't they faster, like, in college to where it seems disappointing? Like, even just, you know, the, the singles or the, the infield singles you think are going to happen don't happen? Like, I think that's what's, I guess, the, the most surprising thing to me seeing Madrigal come up is, like, I thought he, he was scouted faster. So I think if he was scouted at Oregon State with the the uh, the speed that he supposedly had there, I think he would go in the back half of the first round. But 
I'm just wondering if like the, the lack of infield singles he's generating and the lack of like speed-based plays mm-hmm. he's generating in the majors is coloring how he was scouted in college. Right. It's not going to help either if Jared Kelnick for Seattle rakes because there mm-hmm. are White Sox fans that I remember. They were pounding the table. They wanted the White Sox to take him, but the White Sox still wanted to continue as far as the college bats. And obviously the scouting worked great for Andrew Vaughn. Andrew Vaughn, if he was in this draft, would probably would easily be a top 10 pick, if not a top five pick because of the way that he just hits the crap out of the ball. And that's what he did at Cal. But yeah, knowing what we know now, as far as this year's draft class, that so many teams are coveting the max exit velocity number and your average exit velocity number. I don't think Nick Madrigal is a first round pick in this year's draft class. I just don't. And uh, again, we'll see what the long-term outlook is. And uh, hopefully, you know, he figures it out. But I think it's becoming pretty clear that the days of hitting these shallow Kansas City specials to right field might be going away. So while the league is adjusting to Nick Madrigal, it's time for Nick Madrigal to adjust. And does he have the ability to do so and still be effective? We'll find out. But Mark, thank you so much for your question. Our next question is a is a two-parter here. I think it's a joint question from Andrew Siegel and as in rec. And Andrew's asking, let's look for a way to improve the outfield. The trade market, it seems like it could be a seller's market with a lot of teams bunched in the wildcard standings. So do you act now and call Colorado, Pittsburgh, or Arizona? Or do you go to the Charlotte pipeline, giving Gavin Sheets or Luis Gonzalez or Brian Goodwin a chance? And as in rec wrote to us, who are we more likely to see in the White Sox outfield in June? Brian Goodwin or Gavin Sheets? I think Brian Goodwin was the outside addition for the time being, like while the standings take shape and while the trade market materializes and while we learn, you know, which which, you know, players are going to be the ones, uh, you know, on the market and which teams are going to be the ones selling. I, I think Sheets is the guy to keep an eye on just based on the way they've deployed him. Uh, there's, uh, you know, he's, he's basically played as much right field as he has first base and, you know, you know, not left field, right field. And, you know, Blake Rutherford is there and Blake Rutherford can play right field. And Luis Gonzalez was hurt a little bit, but he can play right. Like, uh, you know, it's, he's not playing right field because there's an emergency he's playing right field. I think on purpose, probably in case of an Adam Eaton injury, uh, because really the White Sox don't have anybody to handle that corner, Besides Larry Garcia, and you know, as we mentioned, you really don't want to see Garcia and Hamilton in the same outfield. So I, I think at that point, um, you know, you have a case where uh, you know a guy like Sheets makes sense. I, I will say that you know when you look at Charlotte, and I mentioned this in the Meyer League uh, report that right now a lot of guys are hitting well in Charlotte. Like Sebi Zavala looks like a world beater again in Charlotte, and so I think you know having them go on the road after two series at home. Well, tell us a little bit more about just exactly how power is playing, you know, whether Jake Berger is a guy who can hit three homers in a row, you know, whether Sheets is a guy who can go deep twice in a game, or, you know, do their numbers look more ordinary after one extended road trip? I think that's what I'm going to be looking at with Sheets, you know, over the course of the next two weeks. But, you know, should June roll around and uh, Eaton gets hurt or somebody isn't cutting it to where, you know, there is an opportunity, I think Sheets could be the guy who gets the call if he can at least hold the line as he goes on the road. I think I'm ready to buy a ticket to jump on the Gavin Sheets bandwagon, Jim. Yeah, he's pulling the ball in the air. Even his opposite field contact is also impressive. 
Yeah, that's always been there, though. It's just more a matter of for a guy who's that big and lumbering to me, mm-hmm. just being able to punish the occasional ball in the air, I think is, you know, what was going to be the difference maker as a first baseman. Now, if he can play like a, a cromulent corner outfield spot, I think that makes it a little less important. Yeah. And, and, and makes, you know, just his, uh, you know, decent batting eye, ability to draw a walk and ability to kind of hit a double left field uh, more than he hits a homer to right. I think that plays up a bit more to where he's not just another Andy Wilkins. Um, but uh, I'm intrigued. Yeah, I'm intrigued by the combination of a little bit more pull power, it seems, and also the ability to play in right field and not be like laughed out of the position or uh, actually being able to bump other guys away from right field. Well, shout out to our last week's podcast when we answered your guys' question at P.O. Sox about possible trade offerings for the White Sox to the Chicago Cubs for Chris Bryant. And all I got to say is keep hitting like this, Gavin Sheets. Because uh, that'll make yourself more attractive uh, to teams that are looking for ready-made talent. And uh, yeah, maybe the White Sox will still have a use for him. But Gavin Sheets is hitting the ball very well. And I am ready to buy a ticket to join the bandwagon. So if you know anyone selling hype train tickets, Jim, let me know. Because I am I was one that wasn't totally sold on Gavin Sheets and what he was doing in Birmingham. But watching his start in Charlotte, I feel like he has made... Some necessary improvements as far as hitting the ball, and he looks strong. So maybe if the White Sox don't trade him away, he could be in the mix for the White Sox in 2022 in some type of role. But continue to hit like that, and he's going to find his way to the major leagues soon enough. But Andrew and Azenrec, thank you guys so much for your questions. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week to P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like to have answered on an upcoming episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Again, the best way of getting your question on the show is by helping support Sox Machine on patreon.com slash Machine. We have several different tiers of support starting at $2 or $3, $5, and $10 a month. You get exclusive content. You get ad-free versions of both the website and the podcast. And you also get first crack at our Socks Machine swag. So if you enjoy our work and you want more, go to patreon.com slash Socks Machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this edition of the Socks Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Socks Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance.
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.